Welcome to the Leadership School Podcast. I'm your host, leadership and self-care coach, Kyla Kofer. Here at the Leadership School, you'll hear leaders from around the world sharing their stories and expertise on how to lead with balance and integrity. Our goal? Teach you how to be an extraordinary leader. Hey, everybody. I'm here for episode 25. I'm here today with guest Ted Rouse. So Ted is the co-founder of Sociocracy for All. Now, what is sociocracy? Well, it is a method of leadership. You know, one of the reasons that I started the Leadership School podcast was that I really wanted, well, I, I wanted to learn more methods of leadership and share those as well and filter all these methods, ideas, tips, wisdom, filter that through integrity and well-being. So we're doing that intentionally in every episode and specifically here when we're talking about sociocracy, which is a method of leading. Now, there are dozens and maybe even hundreds of different methods and ways to go about your leadership. So this is just one of them. And I really enjoyed getting to into maybe, I don't know, the nitty gritty of what does this look like? How does it play out? How does it work in situations. We talked some specific examples, what it might look like to use this method. And we also talked about sometimes that it really, it really might not work. So I hope that you find this helpful. And if you have any questions about it, reach out to myself or to Ted. So we really want to provide a great resource here for you. Ted, thank you so much for for joining me on Leadership School today. I I have really enjoyed getting to know you and I'm really excited about this conversation that we're about to have. So before we get in, um just well, just thank you for being here. <laughs> I appreciate your coming. Thank you. I've enjoyed getting to know you too, Sam. Looking forward to this. Yeah. So why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and then um we'll go from there. Sure. So kind of the one of the hats I'm wearing is I'm a sociocracy trainer and consultant. I won't talk about that. So I'm helping organizations be organized and make sure that everybody in the organization can be heard. I live in an intentional community, in a co-housing community. So I live with 70 neighbors or so. Uh, so that, and I've been here for about 10 years. And let's see, what else? I have five children that spend half of the time with me and half of the time um, with my ex, who also lives in the same community. So I do get to see them when they steal snacks from my house. Um, yeah, but my days are really spent with organizations and teaching people um, about how to have meetings and all. Awesome. Okay, sociocracy. So we're going to really get into sociocracy today. Um, but you mentioned intentional community, intentional living. So can you explain what that is for people who don't know and haven't heard of that before? Sure. So it's the idea that we're better off if we're sharing more and that we're part of the community. So if you think of kind of the idyllic village, maybe of you know, 120 people or so, everybody lives in their own house. Um, it tends to be that way. And then we have one community building that we all share and we do everything ourselves. Like, you know, we have a team that mows the lawns and that like takes care of the community building and holds the, like has the parties. And one uh, centerpiece of the community is also that we have meals. Um, so that depends on the community. In my community, it's twice a week that somebody cooks and then 50 people eat together. So we have a big dining hall in the community building. And that's kind of one of the one of the big meeting moments for the community. And you all live close by, like your neighbors. You live in the same neighborhood. Yes. Just, like next door neighbors. And 
Right. So in my case, it's 32 houses. Sorry, in my case, it's 32 houses very close together. And it's actually even built in a way so that you're, that you're likely to bump into each other. So for example, all the cars are outside. And then our groceries, we have like carts that we put them on, you know, and then we you haul them up um, up the hill in my case, and then to the house. And for example, the mail gets delivered into the community building. So everybody, basically every day, at least, goes there once. And that's when you bump into each other. So it's all built just for, for being together, really, and having having a balance between having your own private space, but also directly once you step out of the community being in, in public or in, like in community space. Um, are there people in homes in your community that aren't part of your community or does everybody there it, in part of this? The intention is that it's all occupied by community members. Some people are, we have been around since 1994. So some people are renting out spaces and sometimes renters are not necessarily members, but we, do intend to have the even the spaces that are rented out occupied by people who really care about the community. So there's kind of both on the rental side. So it's 50 plus people. You said 32 houses of people living next to each other, near each other, um, integrated in each other's lives where you're having meals together. So it's like having um, a really big family that you see all the time. Yes. Yes. Chosen family. A chosen family. It's so fun. So these communities exist all over the world. Um, I've been personally a part of a couple of them. And so it was really interesting to connect with you and meet you. We had not met before, but uh, it was just really interesting to bring that part of back up of something that I had heard of a long time ago. So this has been really fun. But from your intentional community stemmed this program or this your leadership method and organization called Sociocracy, right? Yes. Sociocracy has existed a long time before already, but it's used here in, in many intentional communities, actually, all over the world, because it's kind of very, very good fit for that kind of use case. Um, but it's also used in other organizations. And I myself was exposed here uh, to sociocracy for the first time when I moved here 10 years ago, So because we had just adopted that way of operating. So that was that's that connection. Okay. So, yeah, tell us about when your organization um, and what is sociocracy because we want to get into how this is applies to leaders and how this is a such a great skill to have in your leadership toolkit yes so what we're trying to do is we're trying to distribute power that's kind of the headline for everything right because if you have power concentrated in very few people it's a little bit like having water concentrated and just letting it sit there and now it typically goes bad um, and the same happens to power if it just stays in one group and in one place. And what we instead try to do is we try to take all of that water and put it into places like an irrigation system that kind of distributes it into many different places where then we can do something with that power, right? Because power is basically agency is being able to do something, right? So we want power in many different places in the hands of people who are doing stuff. And the way we do that is we take all the decisions that can possibly be made in an organization and make sure that every decision or every kind of area of decision-making fits into the bu a, a bucket. And then that bucket of decisions can be made by people who are working in that area. So in, in sociocratic jargon, what we say is we have a circle that works in a particular domain. So these are, for example, all the people have, that have to do with a website. You know, like everybody who's contributing to the website might be in a circle that is a website circle. And then 
those people are also the decision maker in that domain. So they make the decisions on the website. So that way we're really close. We're really bringing the action and the decision making very close together because it is literally the people who are doing the things that make the decision about those things. So that's one design principle. And then all those clusters, all those circles are connected because we build kind of subsets of things. So for example, in my community, um, you might have a circle that has to do with buildings and grounds, just like everything that has to do with, with the roads and so on. But then a subset of that is the people who are the snowplow team. Or you might have everybody who's involved in gardening and landscaping. There's kind of a like a, a group for that. And then there's a subset just for the people who, who deal with the gardens or the people who deal with a particular aspect of, I don't know, the berries, for example. So that way you always have a team that is really taking care of something. And then you have those superordinate teams kind of that do, that just make sure that everything is in alignment. And then at the center, there's one team that is just making sure all the different things like the roads and the gardens and the community building and contract resolution, everything is kind of in alignment and everything is taken care of. But that center circle tends to not make decisions and just make sure that everything is really taken care of and everything has a place where it can be decided. So what I'm hearing, tell me if this is right, is that the difference between sociocracy and maybe how like um, you might see a, corp- a company in corporate America working today would be the, in the decision making that you might you have the people who are assigned certain roles, just like you would have in a company, but the decision making is more distributed equitably instead of saying, I'm going to make the decisions and tell you what to do and have that trickle down. It's okay, I'm going to make sure that you have the resources that you need and that everything, everybody has got the project, all the projects are distributed. But once you have that assignment to work on this project, you are have complete control over it. The person above you isn't going to be telling you yes or no on something. Correct that and it's even to the extreme that let's say let's use a very concrete example that might be the easiest so let's say um, we have an exercise room within the community building which we call common house so common house circle then has this that's that's a circle right and they might make for example decisions about when does the common house get locked at night or something like that and then you might have exercise circle that makes decisions about you know how to use budget for exercise things um i don't know what do we do about like what is the age limit how old does one have to be to be in the exercise room by oneself and so on and now common house circle in this situation is not allowed to undo a decision that the exercise room made for the exercise room so you can't, just because it's a sub-circle of yours, you can't just boss them around. And that's kind of the opposite of what happens in hierarchical situations, right? Whoever is above you can undo or overrule everything that you've done. And it's exactly the opposite of that. You kind of start more from the bottom and you give this power to the grassroots, like the, the lowest level. And by low, I mean kind of more, most grassroots, like the most concrete action-oriented groups. They make the decision and then the rest is just to make sure there's alignment, not to tell anybody what to do. Yeah. So let's think about this in terms of um, a nonprofit organization. You do have, you have a nonprofit organization, correct? Yes. Um, yes. So I'm thinking about this in terms of uh, how a nonprofit might run or a, a company. Um, when we've got, let's say it's a, I was, I used to be on the board of a nonprofit. I was on a board of a homeless outreach here in Nashville and um, we had 
our team who did the cooking. We did meals every week. We had um, teams that helped with clothing um, and it's exploded and grown out since then where now they have outreach teams that are helping people with um, resources, with getting, you know, tents and clothings or access to driver's licenses and um, haircuts and, you know, all sorts of different resources. Uh, So we have different teams and organization within the organization, but the organization, the common goal was to love people well and to build relationships with people who didn't have homes. And everybody kind of had their unique roles in that. And then we had, but we had the board, we had the people who had the most experience in it, the people who were in charge in this leadership team. And we would make decisions about um, how things would operate. We had some set rules, like, and a lot of it was safety related because we were in a, you know, especially in the summer when you're in a low income population that there can be more violence. And so when it's hot and um, people get hot, hungry, and angry, all of those things come together. And so we would have some safety rules set in place and leadership team would, would do that. But thinking with this particular organization, you're saying that, okay, the clothing team, they've got their clothing and they'd be responsible for all the clothing, whatever decisions they make about the clothing goes, any other any other leadership team, the food team wasn't allowed to make change, wouldn't be allowed to make changes on that. A leadership team, the executive director, the board wouldn't be able to say you have to do clothes this way or not do that way. It's like they're in charge of the clothes. They take it over whatever they want. If we need some resources, we're here to support, encourage, and just um, be there if they need a hand. Yes, that's basically how it would work. I guess I want to put a finer point on it. It's a little tricky in this example, but in general, um, so I think of it in, in domains, okay? Domain is kind of the word that, that, I, that I need to understand this. So yes, clothing is a domain, right? But then safety is a little bit of a tricky domain, right? Because safety in what domain, kind of, you know, is there, is there a safety aspect in clothing, for example? I do not know the domain well mm-hmm. enough, you know? So that's, where I'm, that's when, I, when I work with clients, I really need to understand their world, you know? Really like, what does that mean? Explain to me what are the kind of decisions that you have to make around the clothing, to see how I can chunk it, right? Is safety its own thing or does safety kind of um, relate to, to everything in a different way? So that it's just kind of a matter of how do you chunk it well? How do you divide up those different types of categories? Right, exactly. So in what way can you create a, a like buckets, right? That's how I think of it. How can you create buckets so that every team has as much as possible a self-contained piece of work so they don't constantly have to go ask somebody, you know? That's really what we want. We want empowered teams where they can just go do and they are in charge and they're just doing it. And we don't have a lot of kind of having to ask your boss or then ask their boss or then ask their boss kind of situations because that's just a drag. That's why people, you know, that's what people um, get frustrated by. So making those local decisions. Um, as for the board, well, you would have two extra groups then. You would have the general circle. That is kind of that central circle that just makes sure everything always has a place. Because you might have, for example, I do not know your organization, that particular organization at all. But let's say you have, um, for example, somebody says, hey, um, let's say we've been depending on a particular foundation for, for funding. And it looks like we need more. Now somebody says, hey, we should have grant writing as one of the things that we also do. And then let's say that doesn't have a place anywhere, like no bucket it fits into. Okay, And then you need a place where that can be navigated and where now you can either 
say, oh, the people who are doing the outreach now also do grants, or you say, we now have it our own circle just for grants. So that's why you need that, that central circle to just kind of make sure that everything always has a place. That's what I come back to. And then the board tends to be, um, in addition to that, to just look at the long-term thinking of, are we okay overall? Is there something that we're dropping? Plus the legal system in many places amongst them is, is the US, then puts also the the kind of the legal side often onto the board. And that can be a little bit like, it can be a little bit tricky to make sure that um, you at the same time decentralize as much as possible and also just are compliant in terms of what you need to have decided by the board. Like you can't always delegate everything. That's That's just where the hands are tied because of the legal system. So bring this kind of into leadership. I mean, um, how, what does leadership look like in the sociocracy model? Because what I'm hearing is that everybody's kind of a leader in this model. Yes, that's the idea. Everybody is a decision maker somewhere, right? Then I guess to understand leadership here, we need to talk real quick about decision making, because mm-hmm. that's one other big piece besides structure. And the way we do it is that um, we make decisions by consent. And what that means is that a decision is made when nobody who is a decision maker on that, like, you know, the exercise room circle makes a decision about the exercise room. And it's made when somebody makes a proposal and nobody on that team on that circle has an objection and would say, no, that actually doesn't work because, you know, whatever. So it doesn't require that everybody throws their hands in the air and says, yes, that's the perfect proposal, you know, and that's exactly what I want. It's just good enough if everybody says, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. You know, that's good. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's go do it. So it's um, consent decision-making is aiming at having a, like the Goldilocks zone kind of um, not going into talking and talking and talking until everybody is perfectly happy, which can take, you know, forever, as in literally forever, because sometimes you don't even get there, no matter how much you yeah. talk. And on the other side, just having people not even be listened to, even if they exactly know that this plan is not going to work, you know, but you don't listen to them because you're in a hierarchical system. So this is kind of exactly in between. We talk as much as we need to till we've found a proposal that is good enough, but then we go do it and then we try out and then we learn from it and so on. So that's consent. Um, Now what we try to do is we tend to build a system so that everything, for example, roles or like basic agreements, for example, around safety and how we do this and how we do that are put in place. And we define, for example, you are the Facebook coordinator. Okay. We describe what that means. The circle looks at the description and says, yes, we want you to do this role. And then you're empowered to be that Facebook person. And we build just the minim- minimal agreement so that we can operate safely and, and coherently. And those um, basic agreements are put in place by consent so that everybody's really okay with the, with the constraints or the agreements in, in their domain. And then you empower people, right, as I said, with a Facebook manager um, to go do stuff. So ideally, you kind of put most of the operations into roles so that you know, yes, that's the person who sorts through the clothing when, they, when it gets dropped off. And this is the person who buys the food for the meals and so on. So that you really have um, leadership and, and clarity and accountability of who does what. 
but it's not a coercive system because everybody was able to say yes to that role and yes to that person in that role and then you're ready to go do stuff. Yeah. So, but what do you do when someone does disagree? I mean, that's going to come up and sometimes you're not going to all come to a consensus. And, um, I'm thinking like a jury, you know, <laughs> you, you all have to come to a consensus if you're on a jury in a courtroom and I have jury duty coming up. So I've got that on my mind. <laughs> but, um, what, I mean, what do you do when you, when you don't disagree or when someone's, when someone's really very opposed, like mo- almost maybe even with some anger in it? Um, how do you approach <laughs> those situations? And, that's part one. And then part two is what do you do then um, when somebody who has made those decisions is making them poorly? I mean, you've given that person power to make the decisions, but um, there's still got to be some, some integrity in place with that, right? And integrity for your organization, what your company's for, and it's a moral integrity too. And um, what do you do when someone is doing that job poorly? So I hear that as two questions. One is about what do you do with dissent, basically, and the second one, what do you do about accountability? Mm -hmm. Um, So on the first question, what do you do about dissent? So let's see. In my, from my point of view, one has to back up a few steps on that one because it is very common, um, common thing to ask. So one is that um, we tend to have circles that are made up of members who all work in the same domain. And often when you have that level of conflict, it is actually because you have a group of people that tends to be large and a lot of people are there that are just opinionated, but they're not actually really connected to the work as much. So that is a tendency if you have, you know, if you have a group of 12 people that are trying to make a decision about something that they're not actually involved in, then kind of opinions go up and and your level of alignment goes down, actually. So that's one little preamble, just that if we form groups that are really around the work and they tend to be small in sociocracy, as in like six people, it's much easier to find consent because you have this concrete project that you're doing. You're going to be more in alignment through through that the first in the first place. The other one is that we optimize meetings so that people are listened to. So for example, one simple thing is in all of our meetings, when we have discussions, we tend to have them using rounds. So what what we mean by that is you call you talk one by one by one by one. And only when the last person has spoken, the first person can speak again. So that way you kind of slow it down to a human pace. That's how I think about it, which really increases the capacity for people to listen to each other so that way all of like the the anger won't probably even build up because people are already knowing that they're being heard that's already a lot right and you tend to co-create the proposals already so you're already building them together it's not that somebody writes a proposal and then there's this person who's for the first time heard on it in the first place okay so that's a very un- that could in theory happen, but it's very unusual. And then there's another piece, is that if there is an objection, it tends to be if groups are well trained at least, it tends to be that those objections are welcomed. And here's why: that's actually one of my favorite pieces. So the way an objection is defined, I kind of get the the quick and dirty um, definition of it, but here's the proper definition. So you have your aim as the circle. That's the thing that you do. Okay, so that it needs to be somehow described what it is that you're doing as a, as a circle. And then if somebody has a proposal and you object, you need to show how the proposal negatively impacts your capacity to, to um, achieve the aim. So if your 
um, if your aim is cooking cooking food, like in the organization that you mentioned, and somebody has a proposal of, let's say, offering these fancy desserts on top of it, you know, you might say, no, sorry, on, we don't have enough money. Like we won't, literally people will go hungry because we're spending so much money on desserts, okay? So that would be a classical example of an objection where somebody made a proposal but kind of didn't think it through all the way and then you would have to object, okay, and say, no, this is not going to work. But here's the thing. Everybody in the circle agrees on the aim, right? Everybody who's in the circle should be on board with the aim. So now, if somebody objects, they object to protect the aim. They protect, for example, the feeding of everybody. Like nobody should go hungry after being fed in, in our institution. So that way, we have a system where there's not really opposite sides because both the objector and the proposer are on the team of wanting to carry out the aim. And with that little tweak and the connection to the aim and having that explicit, it's less likely that you fall into these opposite camps of like, you know, in favor and against because you keep getting reminded that you are actually wanting the same thing because that's why you're here. And then it's also much easier to what we call integrate the objection. So you listen to the objection and then you hear, oh, you're worried about too much money being spent on desserts to stay with my example. Um, and then you might even do a whole round on it where everybody speaks to it, just kind of slowing it down, listening first. And then it's typically rather easy to find some sort of integration because you reminded yourself, oh, we're trying to feed people, right? So maybe we should put a cap on the money that we spend on desserts. Or maybe we should try it out for three weeks and see what it does to the budget. Like you can always find kind of modifications like that that make it possible for people to say yes to something, even if it's just for a trial period or something like that. And that way you don't get into these humongous arguments because you find something that's small and doable and then you kind of move on and just look back um, later. Yeah, so before going forward, everybody is on board with like the mission and the vision. So everybody, you, you're so clear on your mission, your vision, that, um, that, that that is the center of all the decisions that you're making and everybody is very clear on that and agreed from the beginning. And when you're clear on that, all those other decisions and you're filtering through that is it makes it so much easier. You know, that's, that's what we talk about. I, and I do all the time in my coaching. That's the very first thing I start with, with every single person I coach is who are you and where are you going? Because if you don't know those things, then how are you going to make those decisions? Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of front loading in a way. That's what you're describing to me is front loading, right? And we do this, yeah. That's basically the same idea, just on the organizational level. Of we have to be absolutely clear in what we're doing, and then everything will be much easier because we've had that we've had that conversation, and we're not we're not wondering about it because I know that if I've seen it just so many times that you give a team a mandate that isn't fully clear. You basically throw them into a situation where for months they will argue about what it was that they actually were told they would do. Sure. <laughs> you know? So a lack of clarity just doesn't serve anybody. Never. It just it helps no one to not have clarity. So, yes. Um, and then the other piece, so accountability, yes. So who are you ac accountable to? And that's something sometimes people struggle with because the question is in the system where we build kind of our we build our own system constantly, right, of roles and agreements and so on, and we make those decisions by consent. And what does that mean for leaders? Like, what is even their job if it's not to tell other people what to do? Because that's already what the circle does. So people get a little tripped up by that because then, you know, they might get 
um, elected or selected into into leadership positions, and they're like, okay, but what does that even mean now? What do I do? Like, what does that look like? And what we see is that um, we still want leaders of groups, actually, as in formally selected leaders. They tend to be selected by their circle, or at least consented to by their circle. And then we want that leader to just make sure, like, to be an accountability partner for everybody. Like, hey, this is the agreement we made last time. You know, you said you'd write this thing up, but you haven't. Is there anything you need? Like, that's a typical leader thing to do, just like checking in. Is everything going? Is everything going the way we said it would do? And if not, ooh, what do we learn from this? Like, what's happening? Nobody's handing in their things on, on time. Okay, I wonder what that's about. And then making sure that question ends up on the agenda. Like, hey, I noticed we're really behind on this. Can we talk about that? So those are all leader tasks or yeah, that come with that role. So one is really accountable to the circle, but the leader is kind of putting on that um, the hat of having to kind of be the spokesperson for the circle. Okay. And that is a little tricky for people to see that the way I would phrase it, and I know it's vague, but just to give people an idea, kind of everybody is responsible, but the leader is kind of more responsible. So it's not that the others are not responsible, but the leader really has to pay attention. And it, it a lot depends on their capacity to notice tensions and to kind of surface them and, and bring that all up. So it can be dealt with collectively. But if a decision had to be made, they wouldn't be the only one making it. They would be bringing that to the group. Right. Ideally. So as I said, we're trying to build our system so that everything is already clear, right? And we don't even have to talk about it. We just we just talk when something changes or or yeah, kind of building from there. That said, for example, in my community, there's an example from my community where I was a leader of a circle, um, of what we call a community life circle. So that basically is the circle for everything interpersonal. It's a big bucket and a little bit of a of a tricky like it's a you know, it's not an easy job. So I was a leader at that point, and there was sadly somebody who had major um, mental health issues going on, and didn't actually like used to live here, but didn't live there at that, didn't live here at the point, but still had people here. So anyway, it was showing up and threatening people, and really like in a nasty way. So at some point, as people got more and more concerned and had good reasons to be. Um, we decided in the circle that eventually we're going to put out like a no trespassing order on that person. But it was kind of unclear how it would happen, and it, it, was, it was complicated. Anyway, long story short, one Tuesday morning, the person shows up near the property, and I had to decide, okay, now do I call the police and hand over, you know, the official, like, serve the papers of, like, no, actually, you are not um, allowed to come here anymore. And I ended up doing that because this is not the time when you call a circle meeting, right? This is not where you say, let's all have a conversation for an hour. That's the person where you just have to go do something. But already, like after that was all done, already walking back on my phone, I was writing an email to my circle of like, okay, here's what happened. You know, like, let's talk about a next meeting. I had to act because of this and that. I, you know, I was trying to make a decision that was most aligned with what I knew at the moment, but by default, it was on me. Sure. Okay. And... I heard the feedback after from everybody of whether that was okay or not, but that's the best you can do in that moment. Yeah. Wow. Hey, I'm really grateful that you're listening to the Leadership School podcast. Since you've listened this far in, it tells me that you're really enjoying it. 
It would mean the world to me if you could think of one person right now who might really benefit from this content. Take a second and share the podcast with them. Let's spread the word and grow leaders with integrity and balance. What about when it comes to um, beliefs and values? You know, you've got a big group of people and everybody's going to have different opinions in a big group of people. <laughs> I mean, I have different opinions in my small house of four. Um, but you and but what about like when you get to those what do we believe and what do we value as as an organization? Um, and how do you deal with those when when those are different? Well, I mean, I almost want to ask a provocative question of does it matter? And if so, where does it matter? I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But I guess one has to ask oneself, okay, where does that manifest? Then you should have that conversation there, right? So, for example, in my community, um, since this community is pretty awesome, many of the people who moved in here in 94 still live here. So now everybody is, what, 25 years older? Not me. You know, I didn't. I moved in 10 years ago. So the the um, average age has been increasing um, a lot. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of turnover, actually, which is a great sign, you know, but it still means everybody's aging. And some people are really concerned about that. And then they want to have that big discussion of, you know, like, how do we go about this big topic of aging and the community and so on? And I, and of course, one doesn't really get anywhere, you know, like put 40 or 50 people into a big room and let them talk about where's the community heading in terms of aging, you know, like that's not going to go anywhere specific, you know? So there's two things to say about that. One is that those big value related or kind of yeah, the big questions you can still discuss even in a large group. Like we still do our monthly everybody meeting or everybody who wants to meetings, but they're not for decision making. They're just for shared exploration. So we still come together and talk and talk about those very topics. But then ideally the circles that are in charge of specific things kind of filter what they hear and go, oh, so for our plowing system, this is what this means. Oh, for exercise room, this is what this means. So they take those things and then then um, operationalize them or put like act on them in their domains. Um, if you want to, for example, as a nonprofit, make like a, a strategy, um, then you would have to work a little harder, right? Because then you might have need a more structured approach to come on the same page and know with whom you with whom, like whom needs to be on the same page um to make that decision for example it could be the board or it could be the general circle like the central circle one little comment on that is that one really smart thing is that relationship between who is the decision maker and who can give feedback because everybody can feed, give feedback on all kinds of stuff you can hear 70 people on the question of what equipment should there be in the exercise room as long as we know which four people are going to make the decision so we play a lot with that back and forth between asking everybody, but then bringing it back, bringing it back to the circle again, so a decision can be made. A lot of back and forth. Yeah, and so the decision really isn't like the whole group is responsible for all decisions. Those those decisions are segmented, and certain people do have leadership over certain things. Um, but if you do have an opinion about something, you're allowed to kind of bring that in. But ultimately, the decision makers for that thing are going to be the people who've been tasked with making those decisions. So, I mean, it sounds like very there. Are, I'm hearing a lot of similarities between just hierarchical organizations, but just in that there are more people 
in those leadership roles making decisions. Um, and it doesn't just like trickle up to where you've got one person who's the boss and in charge of the whole community or in charge of everything, but you've got more people who are making decisions together. Yes, that's that's the intention. Exactly. Yeah, no, in a way, it's kind of the best possible um, inclusive way of decision making in a hierarchy, you know, to to the extreme, basically, so that you know that that is not something that happens when it when the leader is in a good mood, but it happens reliably. Like, oh, that's that's really how you run, even even if things get a little heated and so on. That's how you run. Uh, so yeah, but it's not you know it's not an outlandish way of doing things. It is still along the lines of what we know about teams and how they operate well. And it depends on, and it really does depend on a mutual respect and care and compassion for each other. Like I have respect for you, so I'm going to listen to you and and engage, and I'm willing to engage into conflict with you, into disagreements, into working things out. Um, into making decisions together. I mean, are you putting people who are very, very different and engaged on on the same topic, on the same decision? Or because you said you're you tend to put people who are involved in that work, but um, are you going to put people who just typically don't get along working together on the same team for something? Well, if it if that makes sense, that can happen. So, for example, we um, we had a big. Thing happening here a few years back where there was a conflict around a dog that had bitten people um, and the question was can the dog stay or not and you know that's a big deal you know that neighbor back then said if my dog has to leave then I'm going to move out um, so that was that's you know that has a lot of impact because this person of course has 70 relationship with 70 sure. people in the community so that's not something that you can take um, lightly so, but what we did back then was that was again a community life decision. So, um, what we did was we made a list of. So we knew we wanted to form what we called a resolution circle. So a circle that would we would um, transfer the domain or the decision making power of can the dog stay into that group. So we would form a subgroup that can make that decision. Can that particular dog stay? And then the question was, okay, who's going to be on that circle? And what we did was we made a list of criteria that has to be somebody who loves dogs. There has to be somebody who hates dogs kind of, kind of thing. Okay? okay. And then we assembled a little bit like assembling a jury, really. And then we um, had that list of people. And then we let both the person who wanted the dog to leave and the dog owners, we let them, we asked for consent for that list of people saying like, is, is there somebody that can be on here? Or would, if this group of people makes a decision about your dog, would you accept it? Like, do you trust these people enough? And so then I'm not actually remember whether they crossed anybody off. It doesn't really matter. So the point was, it was a trusted group as diverse as possible. And then we empowered the group to make the decision and they made a decision. And that was of yeah, that was received with a lot of respect from everybody. And I really still am pretty proud of that decision, actually, of that method of making that decision, because that was really painful until we had that figured out. So in that case, it makes a lot of sense to have a lot of varying um, I, um, positions within one circle. Other than that, I'm not so sure whether you always need it, because you can always also just ask for feedback from the people with the extreme positions, for example. Okay. So another example, also pet related, actually, is in this community. If you get a, if you get an outdoor cat, this is another huge issue in many communities. Outdoor cats, um, 
in this community, when you get a cat, you are allowed to do that, but you have to talk to your direct neighbors that will be impacted by your decision, and you have to talk to the people, and everybody knows who that is, who hates cats. And assuming that you love cats, you, you know, you can have a conversation with yourself, but you have to at least listen to the impact of what happens when you do that because we're in an interdependent situation. So in that case, it's not that the, the cat hater is going to be a decision maker, but you have to at least listen to them. And that is one of the ways in which you can bring that in. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to that mutual respect and that care. Like, I have respect for you, and so I'm not going to be a jerk and get a cat that's going to, like, tear up your lawn or whatever, you know, that that person's afraid of. Eat the gonna, birds. It's yeah, the birds. The birds. And just be afraid of. I'm going to respect that this person's opinions and their own journey and why they've came to these decisions and make my decision in light of that. Okay. But you left us hanging. So what did you decide to do with the dog that bit people? You know, I'm just, uh, the dog is still here. The dog is still here, but the dog, I don't actually remember, you know, these things when they say resolve, they kind of gone. So I'm not holding on to anything in that story. I think that the dog was allowed to stay under certain conditions, like get dog training, do this, do that, and that was that was all all good. Then. Awesome. Yeah, the dog was allowed to stay. Found a resolution there. I love that. And hasn't bitten anybody yet. That yes. that's a win. That is a win. That's awesome. Well, I want to ask you the two questions um, that I ask everybody is, what does integrity mean to you personally? And I think that that goes probably, uh, what does integrity mean in your community in um, the sociocracy method? So it's kind of a dual part there. Mm. All right. So what does integrity mean in the community context? And I guess for us, it has to do, or for me, and I'm sure pretty, a lot of people would say a similar thing. It really has to do with that commitment that you also have been talking about of um, being in for the ride, really, and saying like, no, if we live together and this is chosen family, it's going to be with respect and you will always kind of come back to no we have to work it out together that for me is that is really the the cornerstone of what intentional communities are about to me and actually when i moved in here i remember having this moment of standing at the the kitchen counter of that new house that i moved into and telling myself all right like let's not even consider the the option of leaving just because it's hard you know let's just like this is chosen family, you know, we're going to work it out. And of course you can leave, you know, it's not a cult, but it's, but let's just see how far one gets if one just commits to working things out. Um, so that's, that is how, how integrity is kind of alive for me um, here. In terms of, um, in terms of sociocracy and integrity, I would say that it's actually something that's very alive because for example, if I have to ask myself, do I want to consent or object to something that is really something I don't like? So again, it's easiest with stories. I, we were in a selection process. We were selecting who would be the facilitator of a group. And this was a person that I cannot, at that point, it has actually changed a lot since, honestly, but at that point could not stand, honestly, okay? And just everything happen. about it just really community. pushing my buttons. Oh, yes, it does happen. Just like, and then everybody wanted her as a facilitator, okay? And we were at that moment, like that, the moment was the consent round where everybody consents objects to that person being the facilitator. 
and it was kind of going around. It was coming close to me, and I thought, like, oh, my, what do I do? Because I really, really, really don't want to listen for her once a month for two hours. You know, like, I can't. But then I asked myself that question that we went to earlier, right? Does her being facilitator impact, for real impact negatively, our capacity to reach our aim as a circle? Wow. And I had to honestly admit it doesn't. It's just me being pissed off, you know? But it doesn't, it's not to the level that I'd say I can't operate, you know? So I consented, but that was a tough choice to make, especially kind of in the in the moment because it was it kind of happened faster than I was able to catch up. So I took that moment to really kind of look inside and go like, is this just about me or is there kind of a, a real kind of in quotes, real reason um, that really has to do with what is real out in the world between us in the things that we do? So, but that that comes up quite a bit, right? Where you ask yourself like, ah, now I just want to go along with it, but maybe I should have checked because I really don't think it's a good idea. So you constantly kind of ask to step into into that um, just a judgment call of, is this actually a real problem? Then I have to say no. Or is this actually just something I can let go? Then I have to say yes. You kind of force into that very extreme self-responsible place of, um, you can't just consent to something that you knew wouldn't work and then later complain, right? Because if you consent, that means you're now co-responsible. And that has a lot to do for me with, with integrity of having to answer that question for yourself very honestly so that you make a decision that you actually stand behind either way, right? Either I consent and then I'm in, then I'm not going to complain about it. Or I object, but then I'm willing to also really make my case. So having integrity for who you are as a person, your own beliefs, values, and personality, as plus the integrity towards your commitment and towards that goal of of being in this community together, of making decisions, of whatever that particular project is and reaching the goal of that project. So having that integrity for just your commitment to the process as a whole and combined with, can I am I okay with this decision? And am I honestly... okay with where this is going. And if I'm not, this is my chance to speak up. And if I don't speak up, then my integrity means that I'm not allowed to complain about it later. Right. Or you would have to withdraw consent, which is a big deal. But yes, yes. So basically, yes, the way you're saying it. And in in a way, it's almost like you're two, two people at that moment. You are yourself, like your own values, integrity, and so on is, is kind of being called to the carpet but also your member of like your role as a member of the circle. So you also have to kind of think for the circle of, is this really going to help us as a circle to achieve our aim? So those two questions and really having that clear, that, that asks for a lot. Actually, I think you just um, really kind of defined some leadership, you know, right there is saying as a leader, you're always looking at two different ways is who am I and what do I bring to this and, and making sure that I'm okay with what I'm doing in this role, but also realizing that I'm here for this other purpose, that I'm not just here to, to be bossy, be in the charge and have everything go my way. I'm here to bring people along for this and to, to point people in this direction. So, um, I, I, that's a really cool description of leadership is thinking of yourself. Um, you've got these two parts to yourself that you're kind of integrating. 
Well, what about balance and well-being? What does that look like um, in a community to um, have balance, to have well-being for yourself while you're also working within a community um, and working in a um, a method of making sure that all are cared for and all are thought of and making decisions. What does balance look like in that situation? And for you as a person, as you're being this leader in this, you run your nonprofit and you're part of this community. What does that look like for you personally? Balance is also one of those omnipresent um, concepts for me because it's always the balance of how fast do we go, how much do we front load, how much we do, do we just swing? So that's always a thing. So around well-being, um, I mean, obviously in a community, balance and well-being, or in particular well-being, are, are a big thing because that's what it's all about, right? We're better off together. Like, and finding that joy and the interdependence. And yeah, I don't want to live at the end of the driveway and be proud of how I'm doing everything by myself, right? Um, I actually want to depend on other people and I want other people to depend on me in a healthy way, of course. Uh, so that as a contribution to well-being is huge. Um, and that, I guess, also carries over. And that's why the two are kind of really made for each other. That's also true in a sociocratic organization and that framework in itself, right? You are your individual, but you are your, but you are a member of the group. So how do you balance that? So for example, again, another real life thing that happened just yesterday, maybe or two days ago, I was nominated to be the leader of a circle and I was really struggling with myself because I knew for myself, I actually didn't want it. Like it was like, eh, no, just another thing. Can't do this again. And it would really kind of impact. You know my my balance and and how I how much yeah, just my capacity. On the other hand, I saw that for the circle, it was really the best in that moment because there were all kinds of reasons of why it would be the best idea. So in those moments, those two people that we like the two two voices in ourselves, right? So now they're telling me different things. If I think just about myself, you know. So then where do I where do I go with it? Do I go more? Do I take care of myself more? Or do I take care of the circle more? In that case, I chose to take care of the circle more. And that is actually also a little bit of an issue in sociocracy that you that that decision is put on individuals. I mean, in theory, the group could take care of that also. But it is here's how I describe it. So I'm part of many circles, right? Not only in the community, but also, I mean, even more in my workplace. So I'm part of, I don't know, 15 circles. And it's a little bit like when you're in school and your biology teacher gives you homework and your math teacher schedules the test for tomorrow and your whatever, you know, Spanish teacher asks you to write this paper. And in know how then high schoolers or whoever, you know, students say, wait, but, you know, you can't do that because we also have a test tomorrow in this other subject. And the teacher says, I don't care. I'm just giving you my things, you know. And it's a little bit like that in a sociocratic organization. You know, there goes fundraising circle wants this from me and general circle wants that from me. And nobody is in, in all of the same circles as me. And can, everybody has the unique mix of what they're part of, right? So there's no mom I can go to and say, well, it's really a little much right now. You know, like I have to set my boundaries and say no. In fundraising, I have to say no because of the three other circles that need my attention right now. But I have to draw that line because nobody else is even in a structural position to do that for me. And that I find really hard. And then it's very easy for people to exploit themselves. I think I'm guilty of that myself from time to time. And 
it really is important to have a culture of when people say no, that's going to stretch me beyond my limits to really, really appreciate that they take care of themselves because nobody else is going to do it, right? So that really has to become part of the culture. Having that part of integrated into part of the, like the value and the culture right. of the community itself that I'm not going to shame you for saying no, I'm going to accept your no. That goes back into all the boundary conversations. Right. And we know that just culturally, we're all biased to exploit ourselves more than we should. So if somebody finally says no, we should really all celebrate that. So, you know, just culturally, we're biased in the other direction. So any sign of going into the into the healthy direction is probably a good sign. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you feel like would be really important to say? You know, I don't want you to leave anything left unsaid and um, anything that you think would be really, really helpful for people who are really growing in their leadership skills. Well, maybe just a little summary, I think, of because I liked what I typically go back to is clarity, but you said that so well, you know, like just the, the clarity. A lot of what I do, I think, in my work is sitting down with people and creating clarity of, okay, let's talk about who decides what and like, what are you even doing and so on. And just, I think, one cannot underestimate how much clarity plays into everything. But again, you've, you've already given your own your own perspective of that, which I very much share. So um, that's maybe the one thing I keep going back to. Um, and then everything else just follows from that because then you have that, have that, um, direction set for yourself. And then it's really just skills, right? Then it's just skills about how to say no, how to listen to somebody, how to run a meeting and so on. That's all just skills. As long as you have the commitment and the inner consciousness to notice when clarity is needed. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is such a fun um, way of thinking and a way of running an organization. Um, I really am grateful for you sharing it with us and walking us through that, the process, because um, being new to, a, you know, through, it's not vastly different. It's not like, it's not like something that sounds just completely absurd. It sounds like there's just a different shift on things that we've, we're already really doing naturally, you know, so it's just a different shift and different take, but I appreciate you walking through some different um, conflicts with it and explaining how those would work. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time. Um, how can we find you and learn more about this? So the word sociocracy um, is spelled the way you would think, right? Like sociology and democracy, just make a blend of those two words. Um, the organization that I'm a part of and that I co-founded is called Sociocracy for All. We're absolutely findable everywhere. Um, so I'm not worried that Google will, will or whatever you use, uh, will lead you there. And one particular thing maybe um, that's a good overview is on the page sociocracyforall.org slash content. That's just a resource page of kind of a broad overview of this is how we make decisions. This is how we have meetings. This is how we organize who's doing what. This is how we um, are, are holding each other accountable. So those big buckets there have have then um, articles and videos and so on linked. So you can go there and learn more. Awesome. Well, um, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes for anybody listening. So you can go find that and use that as such a helpful resource. Um, thank you again, Ted. This was really helpful. And I'm just really grateful for your time and for your wisdom and for your willingness to share all this with me and with the Leadership School listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this journey to grow in our leadership. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you've got to check out the leadership and self-care coaching programs on my website at kylakofer.com. Let's change the world together.